Hi, everyone. Drew Prode here from the Broken Brain Podcast. Today, we have researcher and patient advocate Dr. Teresa Lyons on the podcast talking to us about the new evidence-based approaches to support treating and healing autism. Now, the term healing autism can be controversial, but we do know from multiple studies, like the one done by researchers at Cornell Medical College in New York, that around 9% on average of children diagnosed with autism will drop their diagnosis by the age of 19. Now, Dr. Lyon's goal is to increase that number by bringing awareness to the public of evidence-based treatments and modalities that have shown promise at addressing either the symptoms of autism or some of the core systems that we know are compromised in a patient with autism. See, what we're learning from leaders in this field of autism, like Suzanne Goh, Dr. Suzanne Goh, who's a board-certified pediatric neurologist, is that autism doesn't have one cause, but potentially multiple root causes that impact the body's core systems like gut health, detox pathways, mitochondrial function, and more. And for some patients, not everyone... If we can focus on improving these systems in the body, we could see that a patient no longer has a case of diagnosable autism. Now, just to be clear, there's no study that shows that autism can be reversed or cured. There's no study out there like that. And there's no study on Dr. Lyon's protocol and her healing autism matrix that she'll be presenting in this podcast. But that's Dr. Lyon's goal, to show the promise of what her protocol has done for parents around the globe and convince a group or donor or sponsor to do a study on the multitude of interventions that can lead to improvements in symptoms for a patient with autism or potentially heal their autism. In the meantime, there are patient advocates and researchers like Dr. Lyons who are putting together case studies and a data bank of research to present approaches that are showing an extremely strong promise. In fact, Dr. Lyons herself in this interview will talk about the 40 parents that she interviewed whose children lost their diagnosis of autism and how she took the lessons that she learned from them and applied them to her own daughter's health journey with autism. I've invited Dr. Lyons on the podcast today to talk about her findings and what parents can do at home that's safe, researched, and proven with the support of their healthcare practitioner and building a strong healthcare team. I think you're going to find Dr. Lyons incredibly thorough, smart, and passionate about the work she does. And I'm excited to have her here today, especially because April was Autism Awareness Month. Okay. Now on to my formal intro for Dr. Teresa Lyons. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Proitt. Each week, we'll bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is my friend, Dr. Teresa Lyons. Dr. Lyons works with hospital systems, private and non-governmental organizations, and parents to drastically diminish the knowledge gap between the cutting-edge science of healing autism and current patient care so that medical expenses are decreased, burden on governmental programs, including education, are lessened, and most importantly, the child flourishes. Dr. Lyons is the premier voice of scientific reason in the world of autism and has become known as the professor of healing autism. Dr. Lyons has a vast experience in the healthcare industry, both as a researcher and 
a strategist. She also has an international healthcare experience interacting with the ministers of health to improve the healthcare systems of disadvantaged people around the globe. She has her PhD in chemistry from Yale University and loves to translate the cutting edge research into actionable steps that organizations and parents can easily take to improve the lives of those with autism. Her world instantly changed forever when Dr. Lyon's daughter was diagnosed with severe autism and she asked the question, okay, so now what? She's been endorsed by my business partner and dear friend, Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, partnered with Whole Food Markets and has been featured in the Huffington Post and many other podcasts. Dr. Lyons educates parents, staff, and physicians at major hospital systems, as well as works with clients in eight countries to help heal and bring smiles to those affected by autism. Dr. Lyons, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So autism affects one in every 59 children in the U.S. And there's so many other things that people do not... We, everybody knows the word autism, but there's so much more out there to fully understand its impact and the severity on it on those who suffer from it. So I'd first like to ask you to help us understand what is autism and also can you share some of those stats with us of how it can impact the lives of those who suffer from it? Sure. So autism is a spectrum, as you said. So it affects people in many different ways. And a lot of times it's thought of either having a low functioning, someone on the low functioning end of the spectrum, meaning um, schooling is very difficult, um, writing, everyday living skills are very difficult. They might not ever be independent. And then on the other end of the spectrum is more the high functioning and um Schooling there might be in mainstream. Um, There might be not as much needs for speech therapy, things along those lines. The behavior won't be as extreme and as noticeable as in low functioning. So with autism, the diagnosis is made on observations. It's all about behaviors. And that's why many people think of autism as a behavior because there's no test for autism. It's all based on the doctors and experts' observations. And so to get to the science of the spectrum, so I'm a scientist, and um, when my daughter was diagnosed, I looked at it as a scientist would do. And really understanding the spectrum is on one side, you have 9% of children who are diagnosed with autism heal completely, meaning they're not on the spectrum. They don't have another comorbidity that's replaced that autism diagnosis. They are um, happy and smiling. They're going on with their lives. And the other end of the spectrum, the science, the, the information that's in the literature, epidemiologists have studied this, is that the life expectancy of those with autism is drastically reduced. So in the U.S., if you have an autism diagnosis, the average life expectancy is 36 years. As wow. A, yeah, as, as opposed to general population, which is 72. So that is really the startling facts of what the spectrum is. Yes, there is behavior, but there is so much more than just behavior that will affect the quality of life of the child, of someone's child, and... Um, what they experience in life. And when we say it's 32, which is so startling, and I I didn't even know that fact. I know it was reduced. I didn't know it was that low. What are ultimately, uh, I'm sure it's a a wide range, but what are ultimately 
these individuals who are diagnosed with autism, what are they passing away from? Is mm. it other chronic disease aspects? Is it what? What is what is? Uh, do they have other uh, issues along with it that come with uh, them being on the spectrum? Sure. So um, in the U.S., a lot of um, people on the spectrum die from accidents and injuries. Mm. So suffocation, asphyxiation, drowning. Um, researchers in Denmark looked at the entire country as a whole and did a study from 1987 up until almost present day to try and really understand what is the cause of death. And they were able to tease out information from those with low-functioning autism. They had more severe health issues. So the number one cause for someone dying in Denmark with low-functioning autism in the past 30-ish years was seizures. Mm. So that's a comorbidity of autism, and um, it's devastating that people with autism are affected that severely and that often with seizures, something that really can be um, more effectively managed. And accessing quality health care for someone with autism does get tricky. And so the Denmarkers looked at the Denmark uh, study looked at the high functioning autism and um, what was causing a lot of the death there was suicide. Mm. So the cause of death does vary, but universally, this is male, female, high functioning, low functioning, the life expectancy is decreased. So you can start teasing out what is that cause and it depends again on where the spectrum the person lies and by all accounts from everything that we read out there it's on the rise yes and before we talk about you mentioned your daughter and we get into her story let's just talk about autism and it being on the rise and the the first question is is it because we've increased our diagnosis? There's a lot of people that are out there that feel we've just gotten better at diagnosing autism. Is that why it's on the rise or something else potentially going on? It's hard to tease out. So I put on the scientific hat. So um, What do we know right now from what's available to us yeah. in science? Um, so it's not necessarily that we're better at diagnosing. Yes, we are increasing awareness and we're increasing a pediatrician, regular pediatrician screening process, uh, flagging it up to the experts. Um, but recent data showed that there's not that much difference between the diagnosis rate of an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. So the CDC is monitoring that kind of information. Um, we as people in general have gotten more and more unhealthy so it's not necessarily that much of a surprise considering how m- much disease is on the rise for, for everyone. And if you look into the history of autism, and I would wonder if, if you have any more information, I mean, the science is always evolving. In fact, in the beginning, there were theories that bad parenting caused autism. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? So that theory is still out there a little bit. Yeah, tell Um, us about that. So even myself, I had a a pediatrician when my daughter wasn't talking very much, and she said I was not reading to my daughter enough. And I certainly was. And had your daughter had gotten the uh, diagnosis of having autism? She hadn't had it yet. Got it. No, there there was some concerns. So this was me presenting to the doctor. 
you know, something's not going right on these regular wellness checks. And um, so my daughter had a few words and then lost it. And the doctor was saying, well, you need to read to her more. And, you know, how much time are you spending away from her? And I would read scientific journals to my daughter because she would love it. She would smile. She would enjoy it. And then her and I are bonding over science. I mean, that's what I imagine. And the pediatrician told me, don't do that. It's, it's too complex. You know, read simple books. And, and I'm like, wow, I'm like my parenting, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I thought my daughter and I were having fun, but you're saying that might be contributing to her not speaking. Okay. So the doctor told me, um, you know, when you feed her banana, say banana over and over again. And I'm an A-type person. So if I see something wrong with my daughter and the doctor tells me, okay, try this, if it's not going to cause harm, then sure, I'll try it. So we would do that for hours. You know, we would have the banana and I would say, banana, buh, Thinking that there was just something that wasn't being done or your daughter might be a slow learner and that's essentially in a way like your guys' fault. Right. So that that is still out there a in little the lexicon, bit even it, though it medically is understood that we now understand medically that bad parenting is not no, related not, to that nope, not at all it's still sort of in the lexicon it's still it's still you can still feel the reverberations of, yeah. of that still there because as a parent i know for myself i felt like a failure for a long time just because some of those simple things as my daughter smiling when I came into the room, that wasn't there. So that's one of the things for parents to look out for if their child doesn't smile. So this is at like six months a year, something like that. If the child is not smiling at you when you walk into the room, that's definitely a warning sign. So there is that that interaction between the parent and the child, but just because the child doesn't smile at you, it's not your fault. And I think what's important by starting off this way, and I want to touch on your daughter's story, is I love that people call you the professor of healing autism because when our understanding in the in in sort of medical culture first started, there was all these associations of, oh, this could be bad parenting. The science evolved, and the science is still evolving. And there's so many different theories and misinformation that's out there when it comes to autism, and you sort of see yourself in the middle saying, here's what's on the cutting edge that we know of, and here's some things that we maybe can let go of that are not the best serving components. And so I want to jump into it. But before we do, tell me about your own story and your daughter's story. You started started to share a little bit, but when did you first think that something was happening and took your uh, daughter to uh, see um, a pediatrician? I first started getting that that kind of intuition that something was wrong around nine months. It just that I had this feeling something's off. Um, and we would go to the regular visits and look at milestones. And um, then it became, well, okay, let's let's try many different things before we go down the autism road. So you get a hearing test and you get an eye test and do a variety of different things. Um, and... You can reliably diagnose autism at two years old. That's really the ideal time to get an, a diagnosis. Unfortunately, now the average age is around four years. So we went through that whole process of, well, let's try and eliminate other things. Um, because like you said earlier, there's not exactly one test you no. can get. They have to look at behavior. They have, 
Yeah. And then work backwards. It's it's a process. So you get um, a speech evaluation, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, so when the diagnosis is made, and I had it done by um, a world-renowned expert, she would look at um, reports from five or six different educators and other experts as well so that she had, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes with my daughter, but she had, um, you know, quite a few reports to look on. That's how the diagnosis of, of autism is made. And prior to the age of two, it's very difficult to get that because you can't get all the inputs that you need as uh, someone yeah. diagnosing it. Yeah. So different things like when the child doesn't smile, that's what's important when the child's younger and those are starting to be the flags. That Those can be early signs to pay attention. Yes. So you started to notice some of these things at nine months old. Do you remember the yeah. first time that you noticed something? It was just a parenting was really hard. So that bond that her and I would would have, you know, reading science journals and, and doing things, it just started to vanish. So it became hard to connect, and it becomes very... Um, isolating. And so when the diagnosis is made for the children, there's a lot of emotions that come up with the parents because it's really hard to do so much for someone who doesn't look at you when you walk into a room. So I I didn't get, you know, highs and bye-byes and um, it, it really can feel very isolating and almost like there's a layer between you and your child yeah i've heard that before from other parents whose uh children on the spectrum is that they feel like there is a buffer or a layer between them and their their child yeah so i did something with my daughter to connect with her in her way so that i knew what she wanted so another thing that an autism parent struggles with many times is what does my child actually want for their life? So um, with high-functioning people with autism, having a higher suicide risk, for my mind as a parent, that's always in the forefront. So I want to make sure to be as compassionate to my daughter as possible. So what I did with my daughter to kind of at least connect in one way was... um, this was right around a little bit after her diagnosis. She was severely autistic, so there was no, um, there's no writing, there's no smiling, there's no talking. Um, she had seizures, um, aggressive behavior, all things like that. So to, to break that gap, um, she was in her high chair. I put a big piece of paper down on her table, got out the Crayola finger paints, and just put a whole bunch of squirts on the page. And I said to her, if this is who you are, I can love you this way. But if you want me to help you, then you've got to give me some signs so that I know I do what you want. And so she just took her hands and moved them around, and she made this big heart. And I was like, oh, that's it. (laughs) I know what you want. This is my North Star there's going to be nothing that stops me from understanding what it is, what is autism on a science level, on a way that I can help her. And I knew that she wanted something greater than what she was able to be at that moment. So in a very compassionate and loving way, I knew that she wanted something different. 
Mm. It's a beautiful way of looking at things because, you know, even the title of this podcast, we call it broken brain because the emphasis is that our brains aren't broken. They're perfect the way that they are. That means regardless of whatever anybody's going through. And within that, if there's ways that we can support our own brain health or the brain health of our loved ones or our family members, we can do that. And let's learn from the people that are out there that are actually doing it and mm-hmm. see if we can incorporate those things. So in one hand, you're both fully accepting and loving your daughter for what's there, but also stepping into a place and asking yourself, how can I be supportive in a healthy way? And at that time, what did you even think about next steps or even first steps? <laughs> what was the first place, especially as you say, as a scientist that you went to to begin this journey of digging? Right. So it's a, it's a combination. So whenever I'm given a difficult problem, whether it's grad school or for a career or anything like that, the most important thing is to come up to speed on um, information. So I did that in two ways. Uh, this goes back to my days as a medical strategist in the pharmaceutical industry. I understand key opinion leaders. I know how information flows from those doing clinical trials to how long it takes to get into pediatrician, which is about 30 years. And my daughter's life would have been half over. Well, technically speaking, it would have been completely over. Um, so it was my first step, just because this was this would take the longest time, was to start assembling a team of experts. So when she got the diagnosis, it was from a world-renowned autism expert. There was I had no question the diagnosis was correct, um, and I knew that I would be able to ask questions that most people wouldn't get the answer to for, for 30 years. So start with a really knowledgeable team is what I did. And as a strategist, I knew how to build that in the healthcare space. Because that's, I think that's such an important point. I'd love to just talk about it for a second. Sure. Because a team is so important because in this world of medicine today, in science and research, often people who are very fur- further along in their career can see one aspect of the, of the puzzle. Maybe they see the left upper side really, really well. Mm-hmm. But then somebody else might be a leader in another side. And so you're getting inputs. And there's a lot of um, pressure on getting all the answers from one practitioner, one physician, one person, especially when it comes to something as complicated as autism. Yeah. And that is one of the maybe tricks. I don't know if that's the word, elegant moves of creating a team is having those different experts who can see the entire puzzle. And it's really understanding that there is an entire puzzle. So there is um, many different aspects to healing autism. And you really want an expert in each one of those realms so that you can get the best information and make the best decisions. So right now you use a word uh, in your write-up, in your bio, you use the term healing autism, Yeah. right? And of course, as you mentioned, there's a certain percentage of people that do truly heal. Correct. At that time, did you know about that? And was the word healing in your vocabulary? So, hmm. healing wasn't in my vocabulary as to what I wanted to do in the beginning. Um, I just knew I wanted my daughter to get better. But then as I understood the science of what was going on, say, in her gut, um, constipation, diarrhea, uh, seizures, the word healing became accurate because it wasn't as if I was trying to change her or um, try to 
in some way stamp out autism and go against it. It was, no, I'm very compassionately trying to heal her. So I could um, see that she was in pain. I wanted to stop the pain. The only word that went with it was healing. Yeah, you sort of segmented out the things that she was dealing with, whether it was digestive issues, pain, other aspects, and you were working on those individually correct and trying to bring healing to those areas to those areas yeah so it is a very compassionate way the way i think of heal of autism itself of someone with autism and then what are we trying to do we're not trying to do anything aggressive or disrespectful so the word that really aligns with um, what i do with my daughter what i've done with other clients is it's it's healing so it's it's just something that kind of naturally came about. Um, parents use different words. Um, even in the scientific literature, there's different words. In the scientific literature, it's called optimal outcome. Um, that, as a parent, like in my science hat, I get it, optimal outcome. When I talk to other scientists and researchers, that's what I use. But as a parent, it doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> so, Because a lot of work that you've done with uh, families and, and kids and some of the practitioners that you've worked with in collaboration – Effectively, in some cases, they've taken the, depending on where somebody is in the spectrum, and I want to talk about that for a second, they've taken the level of symptoms so low and brought the functioning up higher that whether they've reversed autism or not, there's no reversal right now medically, they have effectively, they're completely, in a way, maybe different person. Yeah, so... so it's an opt that's the nine percent that's the optimization yeah the optimal outcome that's what the literature calls it um there are some articles that do talk about curing um there's at least nine different phrases of how you describe it just because it is hard to describe how do you describe something not being present anymore that was only observable to begin with before we talk about some of the things that you did and how that led to the creation of your work in this space and some of your suggestions of at least, I mean, there's parents that are listening to this now that are unaware of any of this and they just right. got this diagnosis. Yep. So before we go into what things look like and what hope can look like for them in the future, um, help us understand, understand, we talked about it in the beginning, but help us understand the spectrum of autism, right? So we, we talked about it a little bit, but uh, your daughter had severe, right. severe autism. Mm -hmm. And there's a full spectrum of what would be there. And there could be different things that work for different people on that spectrum. Correct. Right. When you initially got that diagnosis, did you know that her autism was diagnosed as being severe? Was it at that age or does it take longer until you find out where your child could be on that spectrum? No, um, my daughter was diagnosed with severe autism and at that moment at three and a half years old. Um, so there was no, um, it couldn't really get any worse. And for other, for other parents that are listening or individuals, is that often common that if it's severe, it's diagnosed early? Can people start off light and then go more severe? Does it change? So with autism, most things do not get better unless you do something about it. Right. How about worse to, how about better to worse? Like if somebody's diagnosed as having light, mm -hmm. being on the spectrum and having, um, being high, high functioning, functioning. Mm -hmm. 
could they later on in life move towards severe? Certainly, especially with comorbidities. So as they um, progress in life, more and more comorbidities occur and um, functioning can decrease. So it certainly is a, a reality. So as a scientist, again, as you're putting the path forward and saying, okay, so what's next? And you've assembled your team. You started to understand that there was these key categories that were crucial and important when it came to the health of your daughter and having a severe diagnosis. Can we walk through some of those and, sure. and help people understand? And you've turned this into something that you call the autism healing matrix. Right. So I'd love to yep. walk through it and uh, talk about how you saw some parallels in your own daughter's uh, journey, but more importantly, um, how you also came to the conclusion that these were important things that are there. So give us the background on the autism healing matrix and and then walk us through it. Sure. So um, as I was building that healthcare team, and it, that's the time-dependent step, um, I went into the literature, came up to speed on the science of autism at that moment, and then um, I really wanted to speak to other parents who had healed their children from autism. So there was this kind of quiet whisper of, um, you know, your child doesn't have to be autistic their entire life. And as a researcher, I'm like, uh, more information, please. So it became more about um, meeting and speaking to parents who have done this already. Finding role models. Role models and, and data. At that point, it was really more more data, and it was actually my hairstylist who introduced me to the first parent who had healed their child from autism that I spoke to one on one. So I was talking to him, saying how you know things are getting better for my daughter, and he gave me the a woman's phone number and said, "Call her. Uh, I think you two should talk." So I'm calling this woman, thinking that um, I'm going to help her. And she picks up the phone and was like, oh, yeah, my son had autism. Okay, this is what you got to do. Da, 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 da. And I, I literally had to sit down at that moment because I was just so blown away with being able to speak to a parent who had done this themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew from that moment, all I needed to know was one person who did it. That's how I am as a person. I just need to see somebody else do it. I know it's doable. I can do it. And so I spoke with her. There were times where I would just, and uh, we only met maybe a year or two ago. This was totally just over the phone and texting each other. Sometimes I would have just a really bad day and I'd be like, ah, you know, and it's, it's just getting overwhelming. And she would just text back, you know, you got this and you can do this. And, and it really started with accumulating parents who had done that. So I know over 40 parents who have healed their children from autism. Some have written books. Some have gone quietly back into their lives. I actually had a person who worked for me whose son had autism and the child's completely healed. And I had no idea when this person was working for me that um, a few years ago he had gone through this whole process. So there are parents out there who have done it. It's just no one's taken this data and synthesized it so that other people can quickly understand it, um, have the scientific information to back it up that this is um, reasonable, this is logical, this is based in science. Um, So it's really about 
putting it all together. And so that's how I came up with the autism healing matrix. Because <laughs> everyone's different. So the spectrum is different. Each one of those parents that I spoke to started in different areas of the spectrum. So just like you were talking about earlier, you know, how how do you go about healing someone who's high functioning as opposed to someone who's lower functioning, right. somewhere in between? How do you do all that? And after speaking to 40 different parents, understanding what they did, understanding the scientific literature that's out there on autism, it just flows. So two important things I want to cover before we break down the matrix. Sure. Number one, I'm sure you talk to parents who, even if their child wasn't fully healed, and healing is maybe different definitions of that, right? they might have gotten significantly better mm-hmm. from elements that are in this matrix. Correct. Right? So every, anybody listening that thinks that we're talking about a, a cure for everybody, this is completely different. This sure. is a healing spectrum, and there's plenty of people that have done this uh, and that you've talked to who can get significant, who might have seen significant improvements in their child's health by focusing on these core areas. Usually when that happens, when you see a significant improvement, it's because one or two aspects of the healing matrix wasn't looked at for that child. And, And that's where the kind of magic comes together and it fits and flows. And the second thing, which is so important, is that anybody who's not from the world of science or medicine that includes me i'm just self-taught going down this journey of talking to incredible people like yourself having incredible business partners uh, being involved in the functional medicine community learning researching on my own but never do i claim that i'm the expert in any of these aspects i just try to ask really good questions but people who don't come from this world of science and medicine even sometimes people who do it's easy to look at sort of um well if she's uh, have come if uh, if this doctor has come up with these this matrix, why isn't everybody doing it out there? And that's not exactly how medicine works. As no. you mentioned earlier, sometimes it can take. I've seen anywhere from twelve mm-hmm. to you said 30, thirty years before things that are being shown as strong uh, associations uh, or very promising in trials make their way up to actually what people are practicing. In medicine correct and if anybody disagrees with that just look at the history study the history of prescribing antibiotics we've known for a long time that antibiotics were being over over prescribed we've known for a long time that primary care physicians were prescribing antibiotics for viral issues Mm -hmm. and yet still it was out there right because if it was a gap in education you graduate from medical school if you're a doctor and you're not always keeping up with the literature and it takes a while to get out there. Correct. So this is the cutting edge that's there and that's why it's important to assemble a team that can help you look at that cutting edge. Okay, so now that we've covered those two yep. aspects, <laughs> let's jump into the matrix um, and and walk us through the design of it and the categories. Sure. So yeah, the design is here. It's nice and colorful for... For, and if you're uh, listening on the podcast, we'll uh, link to a PDF on your website. Sure. Yep. Uh, where anybody can follow along, you can just click in show notes and and watch it. Right. So there are different aspects, and it's in a circle form because all you have to do is start to enter the autism healing matrix. You don't necessarily have to start at a particular point. Um, so the key to healing autism is to start. That's the most important first step. So there's an aspect of diet, and um, you want me to go through each category first, and then we could yeah. Why delve don't we go into... through each category, and then let's start looking at them individually, okay? And how you understood that that was a core element 
sure. of the circle. And the okay. Matrix. So we have diet, we have a healthcare team, supportive environment, supplements, educational approaches, probiotics, and celebrate success. Amazing. So let's start off with diet. You know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about diet. When did you start to understand that diet played a role when it came to autism? So I learned about diet when I first started um, looking at autism. The publications on diet were just starting to come out. So I was fortunate to speak to some researchers on information they hadn't published yet. So I knew, okay, diet is extremely important. Um, and what I did was I looked at different disease states and how important is diet specifically, I mean, for seizures, right? My daughter had seizures. What do you do with seizures? Oh, the ketogenic diet has been used for the past 100 plus years, developed from the Mayo Clinic. Oh, that's interesting. You Long know. history and working with epilepsy and Correct. seizures. And a lot of data behind it. A lot of data. Yeah, I mean, that's what's used for refractory epilepsy. So in many cases, why do I have to wait for certain things to be refractory to change diet, which is something that I could do now? So I looked at many different disease states that had overlapping symptoms with autism and really tried to understand, okay, what's the mechanism of action? What's going on with the body? How important is the gut? Um, and, and just really understanding from a holistic level. And then I went a little deeper. And with some of the parents that I spoke to, I would hear about different diets. And believe it or not, there are eight diets that are commonly followed to heal autism symptoms. And it gets a little tricky. Um, so I spoke to one parent who was fiddling around with diets for was almost 10 years. And she said, I finally figured it out. And, you know, we talked about a certain aspect. Um, and for me, I didn't want to spend 10 years fiddling around with diet. So it was really coming up to speed with what's done. So understanding like specific carbohydrate diet that's used in many different diseases, uh, the GAPS diet. So reading, I read all those books, uh, really understand what symptoms each diet addresses. And so um, I did this as uh, I'm a researcher, a computational chemist, so I love data. I love Excel. Um, I actually created an Excel spreadsheet that had 50 symptoms, and then um, the diets, each one of the eight diets, whether they address that symptom or not. So from a very strategic standpoint, I was able to help my daughter with diet by understanding how diet really works first and then executing on it. And what are some core takeaways here? I mean, you go into this in detail in your work, but what are some core takeaways, big picture, that you could share with those that are listening about diet and some of the themes that were there? Obviously, there was eight specific diets that were there, but what were some of the themes that you saw that were very important when it came to autism? Sure. Common themes are low sugar. Um, and even parents who are not following a specific diet know, and I have uh, <laughs> some family members and some friends who have uh, children on the spectrum, and they know that if their child is really demanding like sugar or that sort of thing, and there might be, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but an outburst in energy, there could be bad behavior, behavior after. Yep. There's often behavioral issues. So every parent knows that there's behavioral issues that happen when uh, the child's sugar intake goes up or blood sugar goes up, and there's a pattern that's there. Yeah. So... With autism, that happens, I mean, that happens universally for anyone with sugar. Um, but a lot of times with autism, since the gut is not optimally functioning, 
different foods will cause some extreme behaviors like that. So I had one client who um, the son, when he would eat tomatoes, wouldn't sleep at night. So tomatoes, you would think, oh, that's kind of benign. They're healthy. Um, But when you're dealing with autism, a lot of that generality um, can only take you so far. So it's important to work with someone. So low sugar is obviously number one. That's for everybody. Um, And a lot of people go gluten-free. And I'll say this is one of the biggest mistakes going gluten-free is trying to go gluten-free with packaged foods. Processed gluten-free fruits, gluten-free Oreos, gluten-free yeah, yes, this, gluten-free yes. that. You end up, and and many of the parents that I speak to who went gluten-free but went gluten-free with processed foods, they t- typically see behavior worsen. Because many of those foods actually spike your blood sugar even, even further. More. We've learned that through David Perlmutter and Grain Brain and yeah. the book Wheat Belly that's out there is that these gluten-free foods may not have gluten but they can spike your blood sugar faster. Correct. And so I would say that universally for, for a child with autism, if you're going to go gluten-free, first off, those gluten-free products are very expensive. So that kind of is a barrier. And second off, it's not going to give you a true representation of what going gluten-free can do for their child. And they often have way more ingredients. If you look at like, yeah. you know, Glutino, which is a brand that I'm sure is trying to do well and trying to provide people with options. And many of these early gluten-free brands were just focused on sort of celiac and that sort of spectrum. Mm-hmm. But if you look at their their pretzels, they have just as many, if not more, ingredients on there and additives and other stuff to try to replicate the flavors. Right. And that's not what we want. When you're in the healing aspect of, of using diet to help heal autism, you want to go as pure as possible. So we're talking about whole foods. Whole foods, yeah. Whole foods, gluten-free. Meat, vegetables. Yeah. Not much fruit either. Yeah. Because what happens when um, you take the cookies away from your child, then they're like, oh, can I have some orange? Uh, can I have oranges, a tangerines, mango, pineapple? Those are really high sugar. And um, for your body, it doesn't necessarily matter where it's getting the sugar from, whether... Right. And fruit can be helpful for some people, but we have to be very careful because we know at like the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Mark Hyman has done a, a, a grand rounds with uh, Suzanne Go, who's mm-hmm. a who's a, a, a pediatric neurologist in this field from Harvard University, and talks about this a lot. Almost always, and you mentioned earlier, uh, kids on the spectrum of autism have severe gut issues. Yes, and so it, when you have severe gut issues. Even a little bit of fruit regularly can cause some gut dis- increased gut dysbiosis. Correct, correct. And and then um, it's very easy to think, oh, diet's not working. But it, diet has to be done in a very strategic way. So um, the the next uh, area to focus on the autism healing matrix is the healthcare team, and that's where you really want to work with someone to help you with with diet to help you with many of these aspects trying to do this as a parent trying to do this all on your own will literally exhaust you to the point of a major health crisis there's no avoiding that you cannot heal autism all on your own and if you think that that's your responsibility it becomes very burdensome and it's very hard to do it in a compassionate way so building run down as a parent i can imagine beyond because there are many times where you felt just over oh yeah i've i've been on the floor crying many times when i just 
just be so overwhelmed with what do I do? How, what's the next best step? And um, there are times, even though I had a great team around me, it, it just gets overwhelming because what I learned as my daughter healed was I wasn't really in a parent mode anymore. I was in a caregiver mode. And that's a very different place to be um, mentally, emotionally, when you're being this caregiver to someone. And that role kind of just sneaks up on you many times. It's not something that I consciously thought that I was doing. I thought I was a parent. This is what a parent does. But many of the things that I was dealing with, most parents didn't have to deal with. Um, Every child certainly has things to deal with, but um, someone with severe autism you're in a completely different mental space. So having those people around you to help is really important. Now, that can be uh, uh, physicians, other individuals. Uh, You talk about the importance of like a patient advocate. That's a big part of the work that you do Mm -hmm. is you work with parents as a patient advocate, as a sort of professor of healing uh, to help people, guide people, navigate. Uh, For that, does it also include like emotional support for you were you part of any forum boards or communities or other things like that um that you could talk to other parents who are dealing with this and know that you weren't alone it's it's absolutely vital so you have a diet that's important you have healthcare teams so you want to get different uh, medical es- experts speech therapists there's many different healthcare aspects that need to be addressed so that's why you get a healthcare team and then you and your child and your entire family need a supportive environment and um, i had one client who had uh, wrote out a contract whenever they went to family parties she wrote a contract and before they went to a family party she had everyone there read and sign the contract that there would not be um, any talk about what she was doing was crazy there would not be any talk about um, any negative aspects of an autism story they read there would not be certain foods around because then that causes problems so you can create a supportive environment however you need and that that woman, she felt like this is what she needed so that she was certain nobody was going to um, rock her boat, especially when someone is close to you. So having that supportive environment and family members might not necessarily agree with what you're doing. And so those are sometimes where you have to make a decision. OK, what's in the best interest for my child? Um, so having that supportive environment is absolutely vital because there are going to be IEP meetings and everything that comes up and you need that environment to, to help you along. Which is one of the, the next things yep. is after uh, your healthcare team is a supportive environment. Now for you, you approach this as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you still get pushback from people in your world? You don't have to go into the specific, <laughs> but were there still people that were like, you know, you're a little crazy with this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially with the diet, I, I I was I was a healthy person, but I was never really fanatical about diet. Um, but when I started doing things with diet, people would ask me questions. Oh goodness, yeah, because uh, this is a few years ago. Now it's a little bit more mainstream. Sure. Um, but a few years ago, yeah, there, and even from the scientific community. So when I was talking to um, a head of one company who was looking at. Um, 
different ways of diagnosing autism. And um, him and I had talked a few times, and I said how, oh, things are getting better. And he was like, quantify it. And thankfully, I know how to quantify healing autism. So then I was able to explain, okay, you know, this got better by this percentage and things like that. So even in the scientific community, if you can't quantify things, then it's hard to prove. So, um, yeah, I got pushed back from I think it's important for people to hear because if you are a parent or someone that is supporting somebody on the spectrum, if you're getting pushed back as a if you're getting pushed back as a scientist, as a researcher, everybody's going to get pushed yeah. back. <laughs> Obviously, things have developed a lot. Yeah. Things have developed a lot. Um, but still, there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation that's there. Most definitely. Let's go to the next one, which is quite a controversial one. And I feel like sometimes people hear this term and they think um, immediately, well, I'll let you set it up. <laughs> Supplements. <laughs> Yeah, supplements, it's, there's a lot to say about supplements. That's why it gets its own category. You know, many people have heard from their doctor, they'll say, okay, do supplements work? And mm-hmm. there's a sort of like blanket statement that's out there, which is so crazy because it's f- so funny to lump supplements all into one category. And they've heard this sort of line from their doctor or their nutritionist that, oh, it's just expensive urine. <laughs> and... Dr. Hyman, my business partner, also Mm -hmm. gave you a really great endorsement for the work that you're doing. He says, your lack of awareness is not an absence of evidence. Mm. So just because you don't know doesn't mean that it doesn't exist out there. So tell us, when it comes to autism and the research that's out there, where do supplements fit in? Supplements play a very important role. Um, So I address supplements in many different ways. My YouTube channel, what I do is I have a video that breaks down usually one key scientific paper. So there are different videos on supplements. So a lot of times parents hear, oh, inulin, inulin is good. What's the research on inulin? Inulin, a prebiotic that often comes from the agave plant and artichokes and other things. So So I I have different videos that break down different supplements that are commonly used in autism. mm -hmm. And so I explain if there is scientific literature, I'll go through and explain so that parents can have access to the same information that I have. Um, And they don't have to read the papers and all that kind of stuff, but they can at least get the information. Um, So when they... It's they can use it in many different ways. Sometimes they can take that information, understand it, and then ask their healthcare team a better question so that um, you can see a, a more true result for your child. Sometimes parents hear something great and then they say, okay, you know, coenzyme Q10, that's great, that's great. And they just ask the doctor, hey, Q10, would that be good? And if you go with a different question of, okay, this is the research that has been shown in autism, would this be great for my son? Then a doctor can have more of that dialogue back and forth. And they can reference to that specifically. And this happens in everything. I remember being sort of my mom's patient advocate Mm. (laughs) in her journey of healing from breast cancer. And, you know, four years ago, I believe it was, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, early stage. Luckily, it was caught early. And I assembled a, a team for her, which included some of the doctors at our clinic at the Ultra Wellness Center in Massachusetts, and uh, including Dr. Liz Bohm, who's been on this podcast, is also a breast cancer survivor. And my mom just had come back from her traditional oncology appointment, and she's saying, oh, the doctor said supplements could actually make my 
my uh, cancer worse. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I know that's not the case, but let's hear from somebody on your team that can mm -hmm. give you more specific feedback. And one of the people that was on our team was Ralph Moss, who's a PhD researcher, was formerly at Sloan Kettering. Mm. And uh, he said, I understand why your doctor's saying that. There was one study that was published, I believe, in like the 90s about this one aspect related to breast cancer. But here's all the other literature <laughs> yeah. that's come out there since. And probably he even said, I bet I know how old your doctor is. <laughs> yeah. Because they've not kept up with the science that's out there. And even then, this is what it was showing. So you, you are so supplying parents with very targeted information instead of having an ideological debate on supplements and are people who sell them snake oil salesmen mm. and now talking really about the, the evidence that's out there. Correct. And, and with supplements, I will say this, you cannot heal autism with supplements alone. Yeah, they're so, not a pill. Yeah, they're not in magic. Of other stuff. <laughs> right. So, so many times when um, someone is relying heavily on supplements to do a lot of the heavy lifting that the body could normally do, um, typically I see in children with autism, they're taking 10, 15, sometimes even up to 20 supplement, different supplements a day. And when I work with parents, diet we get set first, and then typically five to seven supplements maximum is what is needed. And supplements are only used short term, so just a couple of months here and there. And it's really to just help the body very targeted and specifically. So supplements is not something that can just overcome everything and a lot of times with diet you're taking supplements to kind of just tread water with bad food so if you're taking sugar uh, eating lots of different desserts and whatnot and not caring for your body then the supplements you're gonna have like a, a gain of zero so and we know from a lot of the work that's out there in the research that a lot of um individuals on the kids on the autism spectrum are are suffering from some sort of mitochondrial dysfunction and sometimes at our practice there might be supplements that are used for supporting that because their mitochondrial function is not working the same as somebody else Correct. so in your research what did you find was um one example of something that has a lot of research behind it that parents, again, every kid is going to be different, every person is going to be different, but what is one thing that was out there that tended to be a supplement that was needed uh, for it? And you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. Sure. No, there's, um, when I first, when you first started asking that question, uh, immediately what popped into mind was melatonin. So I can answer that question in many different ways. Melatonin is the most popular studied, well-known studied supplement in the scientific literature with autism. And um, many doctors say, try melatonin. And the thing with not understanding a supplement is that um, there are actually three different types of sleep problems. And those with autism up to 90% have sleep issues. So for in my case, um, my daughter didn't sleep through the night for like a year or two. <laughs> it was not fun. It's really hard to function as an adult in my own life when I wasn't sleeping regularly. So melatonin is a supplement that is commonly used for a sleep issue. It only works for one of those three cases of sleep issues. So if you're not using it for the right reason, then it's 
not going to work. And that's where a lot of that disjointed information, like you said with your mother's doctor, how the doctor said, oh, supplements can make things worse. That information can just continue to perpetuate oh, melatonin is good for sleep. And then it works sometimes, but not all the times. And it's great for some kids, but not for others. Uh, So it's really important to understand the supplement and make sure, as you're talking about in the mitochondria, that it's used for a very targeted reason and to to be helpful that way. Otherwise, it's it's a waste of money. Essentially, you're talking about personalized medicine. Correct. And how one size does not fit all and how we need to look at people individually in situations individually. In fact, the big movement in the world of autism, from my understanding, looking out the outside again, some of the things that are happening at the Cleveland Clinic and other places, is that we we need to start seeing everybody a lot more personalized. Mm-hmm. What is that unique person going through? What is that child going through? What is their issue? And what things could be contributing to mitochondrial dysfunction in them that would be completely safe for another child who isn't dealing with mitochondrial dysfunction. Right. What is something that's affecting a child's gut that's on the autism spectrum, but it might be completely fine for another child. Mm-hmm. So some parents might be listening and saying, oh, she's saying like our, our son or daughter can't have Coca-Cola ever or that. It's like, okay, well, if they might be healthy, it might have a reaction for them. Like in the sense of a severe reaction, there's still right. effects there from drinking Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> But it's just magnified when somebody's on the spectrum. Yes. And you just hit on a really important aspect of diet. So these healing diets, you don't stay on this restrictive diet forever. And many of the parents that I work with don't fully understand that. So you implement a healing diet for the time you heal. And then my favorite part of working with parents is when we get back to a more... um, easier diet so that the Still healing with whole foods as being a big part of it but not as strict not as strict so like a child when they get invited to a birthday party you know when when the autism is is healing and they're sociable and they can have a, a slice of ice cream cake so it's not as if any of this stuff is permanent that's why supplements it's in flow of what the body needs with the diet you only have that restrictive everything has to be made from scratch for the beginning when it's important then you can use um you know different more common aspects of diet so that it is more fun in life so that's very important let's talk about the next one on uh the matrix sure probiotics (laughs) so gut health you you mentioned it before about dysbiosis many children with autism have dysbiosis of the gut severe candida fungal overgrowth yes h pylori uh, you can have c diff um, many different aspects of of um, dysbiosis in fact in his grand rounds at the cleveland clinic where they were discussing autism dr hyman said it well he was saying you know in medical school we thought of fungal growth and these things is very sort of rare issues. In fact, they would happen in like third world countries. We're not really dealing with it now. We have antibiotics and that sort of thing. But as we understand the gut microbiome even deeper, there's so many layers to gut dysbiosis, especially when it comes to autism. Oh, yes. So talk to us about that and where probiotics can play a role. With probiotics. So probiotics is important in rebalancing the gut it also helps with a lot of the food cravings so when a parent tells me oh you know my child craves sugar um 
usually after we work together for a little bit, I explain to them, that's not your child craving the sugar. That's the candida. That's their gut bacteria. <laughs> yes. That wants to be fed. Yes. Sugar. Yeah. And, and that craving will make their child have bizarre, extreme behaviors. Uh, many times parents are like, I don't understand. It's, it's like, it's like it's a different person when they, they need their sugar. And it is. That's not your child who's craving sugar like that at all whatsoever. And it doesn't have to be that way. So there are different aspects to probiotics. There's certain targeted ones. I actually developed a course. um, It's called Probiotics to Heal Autism on rebuilding the actual gut. So I went into, as a scientist, I went into the literature and really understood strain by strain what each of those bacteria does to the gut, to the body, how has it been studied in autism? And um, I started this with my daughter of rebuilding her gut using specific types of bacteria and um, making it as robust and dynamic as possible because one day she's going to go off to college. And if she wants to eat a slice of cake, I'm not going to be there to stop her. So I need her gut to be as robust and be able to digest that and kind of handle it um, as possible. And that's what's done with probiotics. So this is long term um, in that you get the gut to be as healthy as possible so that it goes with the person throughout their life. And what's some of the uh, strains or bacteria or things to maybe get rid of the, the candida? Like, for instance, I know in the literature... There's a lot of research on Saccharomyces boulardii mm-hmm. as being a bacteria that eats, you know, some of this bad bacteria. Right, right. And so, so what is what are some of the things that you saw specifically that you can give a little preview of? Sure. Um, that could be beneficial to the gut. So, S. boulardii. Yes, you are 100% correct. It's a yeast. It helps displace um, candida. Works fantastically. It is horrible as a first step. It more times than not will cause more GI discomfort because of the die-off effect. The die-off, and and you're introducing, um, you know, it's think of a garden. You have one plant growing, and you introduce another plant that really grows fast. You're going to have a lot of chaos. So a lot of times there's just gas. Um, there's pain with bloating, um, and it it just. It is not the first step to take. So there, it's it's very much a process. Acidophilus is the best because again, I approach autism with compassion. So and behavior change and what's easier for a parent and on the child on the child just because something shows research doesn't mean that it's the first step. No, not in, at in all. functional medicine, they call it the right order. Correct. Right? Yes. What's the right order and approach to maximize for everybody? And and kind of minimize the discomfort that's there. Correct. So Espilardi works fantastic, more advanced. That's not what to start with. Acidophilus has great research. There are very few brands that are really potent. They're the ones that I like. Um, and would those be like the medical brands that that are out there? Yeah, they're the ones that like are. Pure Encapsulations and Metagenics and do... GI have, Pro Health is, is a really good... Um, is it the name of the brand? GI yeah. GI Pro Health. GI Pro Health. Because that's important because a lot of... Probiotics are very sensitive to heat. Correct. And if you're just buying them from the regular grocery store and from just any brand that's out there or somebody making it on Amazon, you want to make sure you're choosing the right brands that are there because they're very sensitive and they can die off quickly. Yeah. And then you make decisions for your child's health and 
it's completely irrelevant because someone forgot a shipment of probiotics on the loading dock when it was 100 degrees out of time. Well, it's a company and, from China, <laughs> not to like say anything about China or anybody right. making stuff overseas, but maybe it doesn't have the same testing because a lot of these supplements are not uh, regulated by the FDA. Correct. Yeah. There are brands out there that are brands that I would not use whatsoever, and there are brands that I use personally. Um, and a lot of times, especially in the beginning, um, I'm very diligent. Uh, I would actually call the different supplement companies. I would ask to speak to their chemists. I would ask, you know, many different process questions so that I could fully understand what I was giving my daughter. So that's that's how thorough I was in the in the beginning of understanding um, what variables there were. And do you talk about this on your YouTube page, on your website, brands you trust, things that are out there? Can people come for, to you for that? I have a course. On, oh, amazing. Uh, Perfect. So yep, we'll make sure that we link to that as sure. well. We skipped over one over here, educational approaches. Talk about that and why you put that on the matrix. Sure. So educational approaches, this is when you're entering a different phase of healing autism. It's called the developmental catch-up phase. That's what a lot of parents call it. Um, and ABA is very popular, but it's not going to help in all aspects. So ABA, um, it's applied behavioral analysis. You take a large complex step, let's say tying your shoe, um, and you break it into smaller steps. That's a fantastic way to teach tying your shoe. It's not good to teach how to interact socially at a party. So there are many different approaches to um, help the child developmentally catch up. Sometimes in development, the child didn't even go through... Um, certain aspects. So um, a lot of times, if you ask a child with autism, go get your iPad, and it's in another room, they don't understand it. And the reason why is they haven't discovered object permanence yet. So there are many different aspects to development that the child might not have naturally found out. So I mean, one way you can test this is take something the child really wants, put a bowl over it, and ask the child to, to get whatever's under that bowl right in front of them. If they don't pick up the bowl, they don't understand object permanence. So ABA is never going to be able to have that child understand object permanence in a natural, compassionate way. So that the idea there's, um, so to give examples of approaches that work, there's RDI, Relationship Development Intervention, that's great for teaching social interactions in a very natural way. Many children with autism don't understand gestures. So when they're older and a police officer puts his hands up and says, stop, a child with autism might not understand that that hand up means stop. And the next action that the police officer might take is pulling out a gun. And ABA is not going to help your child navigate that complex situation. So something like RDI is very good for teaching, in a natural, fun way, social interactions, gestures, things along those lines. There's also PRT. And RDI, these are uh, approaches that are taught by uh, professionals out there in courses that parents can go and and call upon as a resource? Yeah, so RDI, um, they mainly work through parents, so you don't necessarily take your child to an RDI expert, drop them off for a 30-minute mm -hmm. session and come back. It's really more working with the parent 
to um, do more of a home-based approach, which are usually more effective than any other approach. um, Because the parent knows their child best. Yeah, and the child's in the parent's uh, presence most of the time. There's also um, PRT, which is pivotal response. And um, that is a natural progression of ABA. And um, the founders are out in Stanford right now. Um, They started off at UC Santa Barbara probably 20-ish years ago. And um, the main difference between PRT and ABA is uh, intrinsic motivation. So with ABA, how you motivate the child is usually, okay, um, you know, point to red, the child points to red, here's some external treat. Many times it's an M&M, which is not necessarily the best choice. Because now you're wiring for that. Yeah. And the child then learns to become motivated for an external aspect. Versus the internal motivation. So with PRT, what they do is, um, let's say the child likes to swing, right? And so you can then go out on the swing, and if you're trying to teach them to interact in a basic level or to say something like go or, or swing or you know even sometimes just eye contact, you can just bring up the swing And then the child wants to swing, right? Internally, they want to swing on the swing. So you just wait for whatever it is, the response that you want. If it's a go, you know, you pull it up and then the child says, go, you let them go. The child learns to interact more and more based upon what they want. So that's where that whole compassionate angle comes in because then as the child grows up and is a teenager, right, and those with high-functioning autism have a higher rate of suicide, you're targeting and helping the child get in touch with their selves, their their inner thoughts, their inner desires, and they can learn to take actions on what it is they want. And many times with ABA, children feel as if what they did was wrong. So it's it's a different way of of showing correction. So if in ABA, if you didn't point to red, you didn't get the M&M. And so you feel bad about yourself. With um, PRT, you know, you're, the therapist is holding the swing up and you say, go. Or if the child doesn't say go or doesn't look at you, the therapist can do um, different modifications. But the swing, eventually, the child will do something and you just then shape that behavior. It's more action, reaction, cause and effect, less than right or wrong. Right. And it's internal. So then the whole idea with, like you spoke about earlier, about having that that kind of uh, space that it's hard to reach that child with autism, this is a very easy way of, of breaking through. Like I did that painting with my daughter where she finger painted a heart so I knew she was there there are many different ways to use PRT or an approach like that so that you can start to connect with your child and then healing autism becomes a lot more fun and it becomes a process rather than an endpoint. beautiful so the last one on this matrix here is celebrating success tell us about that yeah well this whole process is supposed to be fun this is your child's childhood you can't change that so you've it's it's just a way of it's a long journey depending especially on where you start in the spectrum and you can't wait until that end point to celebrate because then it feels very heavy it's as if you're trying to just hurry things along and you miss the great fun that you can have with your child as they heal to whatever endpoint that they want, whatever is optimal for them. 
is is what's possible. So celebrating that success um, just really helps with your own motivation. It helps with um, really just enjoying that childhood, regardless of however it is. And how did that show up for you in your daughter's journey? Did you find that to be something that uh, you put as an emphasis because it was there, that it wasn't there initially, <laughs> and you had to make sure that you did it? You know, how would you personalize that? Celebrating success definitely did not come naturally for me. Um, I remember the first time in the beginning of the journey where my daughter was just a little calmer. We're talking just a little calmer. It was not it was not a big deal that I thought, but um, one of the experts was so blown away with that. She just was like, your, your daughter is so much calmer. This is amazing. And she was teaching me to celebrate that success. And she just got so enthusiastic that it really helped to motivate me. And it it just, if you hold off, you'll miss your child's entire childhood if you wait until the end point. So um, there are different things that, that happen. Uh, I have a client who they finally took a family vacation because yeah, the child still had certain issues, but they could go and take their first family vacation. Which is a huge deal. Wait, it's and absolutely sometimes when you're a parent huge. and you're so close to it, I can imagine that you don't always see, because you see the little, all the changes are happening in front of you, so you don't see it zooming out. Right. And so it took somebody else in your case to say, whoa, zoom out for a second. <laughs> Look how far things have gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's important to celebrate all along and to have that supportive environment so that people just keep encouraging you. And, and it's, it's, it's a, a matrix. It all folds onto each other. It all works synergistically. So even if you mess up and your child gets a cookie, you know, you have supportive environment who's like, hey, it's one cookie. Don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. And then you're like, yeah, that's right. Okay. Think about how many days I, they haven't had cookies. Yes. All right. Let's celebrate that. It changes your, your mindset. And then you enjoy life rather than have this, this burden of something you have to do. Mm, powerful. What do you want to tell us about your, before we continue on in a few other topics, mm -hmm. what do you want to tell us about your, your, your daughter's journey? You've referred back to her a few times. Mm -hmm. You've talked about even things like one day she'll be off in college. What do you want to tell us about your daughter's healing journey? And she, where she is today. Yeah, she taught me more than anything in life thus far. Just being able to appreciate that smile. Oh, goodness, when she smiles at me. And then I start to see myself in her. Most parents are able to see that in the beginning. And for me, it took, you know, many years to be able to see myself in her and her determination her feistiness and it's great to see her personality come out which a lot of times when the child has autism it's not possible it, it it's just things become just so difficult that um, their humor um, my daughter's laugh very similar to my laugh who knew <laughs> um, it's it's great to see that and 
I, I don't regret her autism at, at all. It was absolutely brutal. So f- for the parents who are still in that brutal space of what do I do, how do I help, just it seems overwhelming. It seems like your child will never be happy. There, There is possibility. Um, and that she certainly taught me that. And when your journey first started, you went out and you sought out these parents Mm -hmm. to show it was possible. You know, these 40 parents that you found and saw common threads and looked at the studies. Would you put your daughter in that category now as being somebody who's healed? Again, there could be different words for it. We're not saying cure, but who's healed from autism? She still has certain aspects that make life more difficult than others speaking is still very difficult for her um so that aspect is coming along um but i've actually learned to even accept that a little bit more because sometimes i would focus okay okay you know let's let's get the speaking going and things will then just go a lot easier so you know socialness is fine uh, joking around is fine teamwork doing chores she has chores in the morning um she does all of that schoolwork she loves she learns in a very specific way so that's certainly important as well with parents to really understand how their child learns um but with speaking, I was at the UN this year for their Autism Awareness Day, and they had um, several non-speaking people with autism, and they really shed a light on how much people with autism understand, but how difficult it is to express. And so that is part of autism, but at the same time, there's many different ways to go around that. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that um, she'll have to suffer if speaking is difficult. You just have to find out what what she needs. And this goes back to the topic that we were talking about earlier, is that when somebody is on the spectrum and their severity and other components, and you're applying this matrix and walking them through these avenues in their life, I mean, even if that's still something that your daughter is working on or you're working on or is still present Mm -hmm. however somebody wants to use language she's fundamentally living a completely different life than when she was oh yeah (laughs) we can go to um amusement so i she to paint the picture um walking from the front of the house to the curb to where the bus would have picked her up was difficult um any noise was absolutely horrendous to her she'd cover her ears light used to bother her It, it was it was very isolating that the best place to stay was home, which necessarily wasn't good for anybody. Um, we've been able to march in the Columbus Day Parade down Fifth Avenue. You know, we did, I don't know, seven miles that day. And we're able to have those moments of of fun. And many times I just think a simple example was uh, the first snow, like um, a year or two ago, first snow of the season, we went outside and she wanted to catch snowflakes on her tongue. So it's brutally cold out there. And I'm thinking the last thing I want to do is be out here, but I'm watching her catch snowflakes on her tongue and being, this is what parenting is all about. So I'm still able to have those special moments with her, goof around, and and just enjoy being a parent. So I'm much more of a parent than a caregiver. 
And it was only shifting out of that caregiver role did I realize, wow, I was really in caregiver role. Because you had to be in many ways. I had to, yeah. I didn't think about it. It was something that I just did. But as a parent listening to this, if you're in that caregiver role, you don't have to stay in that caregiver role. There is hope. Tell, tell us about autism, A-W-E-tism, <laughs> and, and how you use that word and what you want people to know about that. Sure. So I hated the word autism. Oh, goodness. I just, when my daughter was diagnosed with that, that was the least that I wanted in my life. So whenever I would think about the autism, I would get angry. I would get annoyed. I'd get frustrated. I don't know how to fix this problem. Just all of that. And then as we started making certain progress, I could see how determined my daughter was to try different things, to try and learn, to try. She always tries. And in the beginning, it was very hard for her to succeed at much of anything just because how severe she was. But when I started to notice wow, you're really trying. I became in such awe when I put myself in my daughter's position. All right, let's see. Uh, If I had diarrhea, constipation, probably a headache, I'm sensitive to light, any noise upsets me, even when it's quiet. Like I just started putting myself into what she was experiencing. And then, you know, I thought about teaching her certain things and how she's still trying to do things. How could I have anything except awe for someone who's trying so hard when their entire body is failing them in so many ways? So when I had that shift of autism spelled A-W-E, it just really helped me with accepting and loving my daughter and seeing who she really was, even with a lot of stuff around her that wasn't optimal. What do you want family and friends who might have uh, one of their friends or a loved one that has a child on the spectrum? What do you want them to know about this journey and how they can be supportive to, uh, they may not have somebody in their Mm -hmm. own life, but how can they be supportive to somebody who does have a child on the autism spectrum? Sure. So when... When your friend or a family member is going through something with autism, most times don't provide advice. Um, It gets really overwhelming. And then just in the mental space of it seems like everything is so hard to begin with. When someone's giving you advice, many times you end up feeling more and more like a failure. So... As with any friend going through anything, you just want to let them know that you're there for them. Um, that you have understanding. Yeah. And and you could just be honest and say, listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you need the most. Tell me what that is. And if I can provide it, I will. So it's really understanding what your friend or family needs most to them they might just need you to drop off dinner one day or drop off a cup of coffee and whereas you're trying to be a good friend or family member doing something else like okay did you check out this expert did you read this book did you read that the the person just might feel a lot more loved and cared for if you just ask them what is it that i could do 
and the intention is there. It's just how you go about that intention. So I would say just ask them. And sometimes, I mean, even for this podcast or the work that you do or other resources that are out there, sometimes you might even have something that could be beneficial for them. But it's like, how do you sort of set it up so that they can come to you and ask you for stuff? Because I can imagine parents feel bombarded from all different sides of everything Mm -hmm. that's out there. And if you come across an article and you're just like, oh, my gosh, I'm dying to share this. I'm just going to burst at the seams if I don't share this with, you know, my cousin Andy who's going through all this. You could always ask them and say, listen, I found this article. It's really great. Can I share it with you? And then that puts the person less out of the victim mode and more into, okay, yeah, let me hear. Or, you know, no, not at this time. So it's it's a great dynamic that works with really anybody in any situation. Yeah. Always ask if you want the advice, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that would be another way. If you find something and you just have to share it, just explain to them what it is and ask them if they'd like to know. If you want it, it's here. Yeah. If you don't, no worries. No pre- yep, yep. No pressure. Um, what are you excited about on the cutting edge of what's coming up? There may not be research, there may not be, or there's early research that's out there, but where do you see the industry going when it comes to personalized treatments for autism, uh, that's out there that we need more funding for? We more need more research for, are there things that you're paying attention to? For example, I know that there's certain parents that have, uh, taken a strong interest in um, fecal transplants mm-hmm. and how, like you said, you know, fecal transplants alone, we have over a thousand different type of bacteria inside the gut. And sometimes the probiotics by themselves, because the dosages are quite low, even in the mm-hmm. high dose probiotics, there is some interesting developments that could be there super early in fecal transplants and some parents have gone to the Caribbean or other places, other countries where it's not as regulated as it here is. Well, ASU just just did a clinical, well, they did a study on it where they did the implementation of the fecal matter um, and they tracked um, the changes and they saw some characteristics of autism, kind of uh, the controllingness, the um, rigidity, not being able to be flexible to different situations, and they saw improvements in that. But again, this is what happens when you try and heal autism with just one thing. Right. It's not going to work. So that child might be feeling much better, no doubt, right? They don't have to control everything. So that might be the key time to get in there with different educational approaches and really start educating that child so that whatever is missing in that development can be caught up. So it's there's many different singular aspects like that, which is great. What I would love to see is a department that is willing to get behind that whole aspect of the child. The entire protocol. And, and fundamentally, I mean, it requires a shift in approach to trials. And I know Mark, uh, Dr. Hyman is dealing with this and his team at the Cleveland Clinic is they're trying to do outcome-based trials mm-hmm. where, we look at the tr- where we look at the outcome of, I think their first one that's going to be published this summer, from my understanding, is on rheumatoid arthritis. We're looking at, because in functional medicine, in this healing matrix that you have in the world of integrative medicine, whatever it might be, it's not changing one thing. Right. And most studies are like, does vitamin D do this one thing? Yep. It's actually changing all these things, and that's why it does work. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that's why it works. So in their 
they're looking at, okay, what does the functional uh, intervention look like versus the traditional mm-hmm. intervention? And what is the outcome out of those approaches? But most research is not being done that way. Right. So you're saying you'd love to see more research that's done following an entire protocol right. rather than just one thing. Yeah. And I mean, the, the what's exciting to me is there's this field that is developing of studying healing autism. So there's many different um, articles being published and different researchers studying this as an aspect of autism. So it's totally doable. I mean, I know that from personally, but also from the science. So for me, where I would love to see funding is from either a hospital themselves or an academic institution, whether in the U.S. or not. I'd love to be involved. I think you know that. And I would love to have that whole body approach that encompasses all of what's in the healing matrix so that this 9% of healing autism can go much higher. I know how higher it could go. It's totally possible. None of the things that we talked about are impossible, but it needs to have that holistic approach. So even if there's um, a major donor out there who wants to see an impact for a donation that they're giving to a hospital, consider having it be around autism because there can be such an impact generationally for people with autism and really have that meaningful impact of a donation that major donors like to see. So that's where I'd love to see money. And also the earlier that you get involved, the easier it becomes. Yes. Because applying this matrix at a later stage in life, there's naturally tougher challenges that are there. The gut microbiome is more developed. Other issues might have showed up. Other um, chronic uh, conditions might have showed up. Comorbidities, yeah. Comorbidities. I've worked with people, the oldest person I've worked with with autism was 50 years old. So I've seen changes even in a 50-year-old male. So you are correct. The earlier, the better. But um, you still can see change regardless of of when you start this. There's always some hope, even if it's just reducing the amount of pain or the uh, challenges with digestion or constipation Mm -hmm. or other things. There's always hope that some aspect can be improved. Yeah, most definitely. Dr. Lyons, this has been incredible. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing so much about what you've learned that started with your own daughter's journey, but expand to um, this incredible advocacy that you do for all parents that are out there. I really applaud you for your work and I congratulate you and there's so much more work to do but I'm celebrating you right now (laughs) and how far you've taken this uh, conversation Um, I just because I know you're uh, an awesome resource for parents in this space uh, if somebody was interested in working with you and you both work with uh, people individually but also institutions and, and governments just just talk a little bit about how people can do that where they can find you and um Anything that you could add to that? Sure. So I'm on most social media. <laughs> so Facebook, YouTube, um, I have my own website. It's awetism.net. And um, there's a contact page. You can certainly email me that way. I'm, I'm very accessible. I've had parents from all over the world um, reach out. Uh, and I do work with parents in eight different countries. And you become part of their team. Yeah. Yeah, you become yeah. part of their team, maybe even help them find other team members that are out there. That's exa- well that's why I that's why I'm here because I know how reproducible it is. As a scientist, I wouldn't be up here with the training that I have 
saying that these things are possible without knowing. So I've worked with um, parents who have used different functional medicine practitioners throughout the United States. They take different approaches to healing candida. So I had one client who said, oh my goodness, you know, I, I need an antifungal. And she was getting herself really worked up because the doctor wasn't in agreement. And I've explained to her, there are many different ways to go about healing candida because I've seen it done with my clients. So it's not as if this is only can be done in one way. It can be done uh, just in so many ways. But the important thing to know is it is reproducible. And so I work with parents getting their healthcare team in place specific for what their child needs. Helping them find the doctor that might be out there. Correct. Preparing the agenda so that the right questions get asked. We work on, um, this is why doctors actually end up referring their patients to me because the clients that I work with one-on-one, we create a one-page agenda for each doctor's appointment. Um, We discuss beforehand what's changed from um, the previous appointment, what changes they've seen in their child, so the doctor gets really up to speed on what's changed. And a lot of times you're just fighting against time. Yes. Yes. All these practitioners and individuals, they mean the best, but sometimes, listen, this happens even at our own clinic. Doctors are fighting against time and they don't get a chance to fully read all the components that are there and they can't just go off of memory alone. Right, right. So, I so work, somebody needs to work with the parents to be able to do that and that's part of the work that you do. That's Yeah, the part of the work so that you can get to a more targeted solution quicker. And so we only talk about the three major problems that the child's experiencing. We deal with three at a time and I always tell parents how... Put up your top three, we'll knock them out in a couple of months, and then you just keep putting whatever else remains until you're on a family vacation for the summer. The power's staying focused and <laughs> yeah. prioritizing because yes. it can feel overwhelming. And really, that's, that's part of your work is ultimately, what do I prioritize and what has evidence behind it? Mm-hmm. And if we can do those things together, we can continuously make progress throughout the journey. Correct. So regardless of where the parent are or hospital system or academic university, um, this is reproducible and I could work with them and I would love to work with them because this is, I don't know if you can tell, but this is, this is my passion. This is, I'm going to be doing this for a while. I don't need to. My daughter is, she's fine. I could walk away from this. There's no need except for my absolute love of seeing children heal and become who they can be parents enjoying that whole reason why they had a child to begin with it's what i love to do thank you so much for being here for sharing your story for sharing your daughter's story for giving our listeners hope dr lines i super appreciate you thank you hi everyone i hope you enjoyed the interview just a reminder this podcast is for educational purposes only This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider 
database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.